You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have an exceptional guest. I have Fadi from Daffy's Roundtable. And uh, I've, if you caught a, uh, the last couple episodes of his show, I was actually on it, which was a lot of fun. He's a fellow podcaster. He's really into the whole world of herps, especially amphibians. And we're just going to kind of talk about whatever comes up about, you know, why he started a podcast and some of the projects that he's working with. And it's going to be a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun on his show. So if you get a chance, go check out Daffy's Roundtable. A lot of fun. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of really interesting guests, a lot of people from social media and whatnot. And uh, it's pretty cool. So go check it out. And uh, other than that, of course, the usual, you know, usual housekeeping. Uh, thanks for the nice five-star reviews. Great way to support the show, of course, is a nice five-star review on Apple Podcast. And check out the links in the show description. I have some links to some merchandise and some stuff like that. Uh, I'm also an affiliate with um, In-Situ Ecosystems now. And if you follow the link in the link tree, you'll find a discount of 10% just for being a listener for the show. And uh, that's pretty much it. Um, I, I want to get into it tonight because um, we had, uh, Fadi and I had actually kind of gone back and forth a little bit. We had to reschedule and uh, he was kind enough to kind of come on last minute. I had a little uh, little rescheduling. So um, yeah, let's get into it. Man. Fadi, how you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I am, first of all, let me say I'm a huge fan of the show. I discovered it like not too long ago. And then from the minute I did, I think I binged the entire show in like two weeks. So uh, thank you for what you're doing here. We needed an amphibious show, and thank you for having me on. That's thank you. That's that's kind of you to say. I I appreciate that. I um I sure. I, I, I got to tell you, I found your show, and um I, I enjoyed listening to it as well. You had a lot of um a lot of interesting people from from social media. You had a lot of um kind of uh, like a lot of reptile people on there and whatnot. Um. I want to get into the whole dynamics of the podcast and why you started it. But uh, first off, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about how you got into reptiles and amphibians in the first place? How did you how did you get started? Absolutely. Um, so just like everybody else, it is quite a quite a bit of a story. So the the Sparks Note summary of it is um, I actually grew up in Abu Dhabi, um, UAE, so an hour away from Dubai, and. Um, the, the reptile scene or amphibian scene wasn't too big there, but of course, just like everybody else, I was like obsessed with animals and couldn't have the dog and the cat at home. So I resorted to aquariums. I've actually had been keeping uh, fish, uh, freshwater fish specifically. I've never kept saltwater um, for almost 15 plus years now. And then I moved to Canada in 2015 um, and I walked by a pet store and I saw all the snakes and the lizards and I was like, oh, this is a thing here. I can do this. <laughs> And I bought my first crested gecko. Um, yeah, it was 2015, and at the obsession snowballed. I have quite quite the collection at home now. Are you still keeping fish? I am still keeping fish. I actually um, just recently separated my animal room into a reptile and amphibian room, and then a completely separate room for a fish room. So yeah, I have a, my own fish room now. Yeah, because one of the things I noticed in your show was you do you don't just focus on reptiles or amphibians per se. You you've done shows about fish. You've done shows about uh, shrimp as well, right? I have. Yes. Um. I so uh, I, I guess we'll get into this, but I I I, I wanted to I say this kind of bring more information on some of the less talked about things out there, whether it was reptiles, amphibians, um, fish, and 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 sh like shrimp is part of the fish hobby but it's the less known, less talked about stuff. And sometimes finding information out there is hard. So the aim is to kind of target species that, that are less commonly talked about or there's less information out there on. Of course, along the way, we're going to talk about, you know, common species and because everybody's keeping some of the common species. But the, the real aim um, is to have some, some, to talk about species that there's not too much information on there. And the reason it's named Daffy's Roundtable actually is um, I was hoping to someday, I, I know we've discussed this as well at some point, but I'm hoping to someday bring on multiple guests at once and kind of have it be more of a debate than a conversation kind of. I'm up for that. Yeah. I, I love to, I love to debate people. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, you, you, you're already put down on the list. It's, it's coming. <laughs> I look, I look forward to it. Yeah, when I when I caught a couple of episodes that you did about about fish, and um, you did, I think you just did a couple of recent ones about shrimp. It was really a breath of fresh air because I don't listen to a lot of herp podcasts. I, I listen to a few podcasts that are herp related, and I mean, after a while, you get snakes. I mean, in my case, amphibians and whatnot. Um, there's some good invert podcasts out there as well, but I mean, this is like the first time I'd ever heard anything about shrimp, and it piqued my interest because. 
I like to be open to new things as well. And I find that there's a lot of stuff that I guess exists in the exotics hobby in, in the you know, greater community or whatever that a lot of people are curious about, but might not necessarily have the way to get into the hobby. And I felt like shows like yours that showcase a variety of different species, especially like you said, underlooked stuff is a, it's, it's a great gateway for someone who knows absolutely, I mean, I know nothing about shrimp. So it, that, it, that interests me. Cause I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. There's a lot of similarities. You know, you, they're a show. A lot of them are really beautiful. They're colorful, kind of same as dart frogs. So you, you, you kind of piqued my interest with, um, with getting into shrimp. So <laughs> that was, I'm that was glad, pretty cool. I'm glad to hear you say that. And actually that's a very good comparison. They are very much like dart frogs. You know, you get that initial setup, right. And then it's, it's just replicating it for, for different, um, colors or, or I guess different species as well. Um, but yeah, that's exactly, that's, that's exactly it. And, and it's all realistically, it's, it's the animal hobby, right? It's all one big hobby, but there's just so many small niches in it. And once you discover, like, like you mentioned the inverts, that's a whole completely different section. And then maybe the plants and the carnivorous plants. And there's, there's so many little roots to the hobby that just diving into all of them would be, would be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. I'm always curious about people who have come into the hobby more recently within the past I mean, for, for me recently would be anywhere from like the past 15, 20, <laughs> 20 years, but, yeah. um, I'm, so always, <laughs> I'm always curious about, uh, younger people who are starting off in the hobby within the past five, 10 years, because it's so dramatically different now from the way it used to be. And, and by that, I mean, it's become very, very much more species specific. Whereas when I was younger, getting into the hobby, we kept everything. You wanted to kind of have this real big panorama of all these different species. And we really didn't have a good understanding of each one individual species or even each individual group. So, I mean, my question to you is like, what was the, the, I guess the overall mindset of the exotics world, the reptile world, whatever you want to call it, when, when you get started, as opposed to the way I described it when I got into it, like how is, how is it different between the two periods you think? I, I think, well, I actually, I, I had this conversation with a few people before and I, I'm, I'm going to kind of give you their opinions through me because I like, that's kind of the best way I've heard it. Um, I think the first thing is space. A lot of things, a lot of people are moving into smaller areas, into apartments, things like that. So keeping that whole array of different species may be harder than let's say three identical tanks right next to each other in one corner. We're specifically focusing on one species. Um, I think also with the, um, the, the popularity of bioactive becoming more and more, um, I think people are focusing on sort of the, how you say biotope, uh, like sort of creating a biotope. So it's not just now having an animal in a specific tank and then having as many animals as you want. It's more of, and I, I, again, I wasn't around back then. So I, I, I'm just basing this off of other people's conversation and or like what you just said but it seems like it's more of now there's so much more to do with just one tank and with the one species that it will take you more time to even move on to the rest like you can now create the biotope with the exact same plants that the animal comes from the same kind of um substrate by the, I, you kind of see where i'm going with that yeah absolutely it's like um i guess you have more now than we did then. I, yeah, that's the, probably the, the, the best way to put it. There's more to do, yeah. Or there, there's more, yeah. Is there still, I mean, you you do have kind of a, a fairly large collection though, right? I, mean, I is, do, Is I your do. collection yes. kind of skewed one way? I mean, do you keep more amphibians? Do you keep more reptiles? What do you, well, why don't you just tell us flat out, what, what are you working with now? Yeah, sure. So um, I mentioned I, I first got into crested geckos in 2015. So I went down like a, uh, uh, like I snowballed with them for a while for maybe two years. I was pretty much just buying crested geckos and, um, and selling them. And then I decided I wanted to start getting into to other species. Um, so now currently I'm working with, uh, mountain horn dragons, the emerald tree skinks. I have stenodactylus, stenodactylus, which is the dwarf sand gecko, um, morning geckos and the gonotodes albugularis. I probably butchered that name, which is the yellow headed geckos for, um, the dwarf yellow-headed geckos from Costa Rica. Um, they're really cool. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, no, I'm not um, not really uh, skewed in one way or another. I, I think I pretty much have an equal amount of reptiles and amphibians. For amphibians, I have um, six species of dart frogs and the Spanish ribbed newts. And 
no, that's it. That's all I have for amphibians. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a mix of, it's a mix of everything, but, but I do, I do get, when I get into a new species, I do feel like there is like a three to six month period where I'm completely obsessed with this one species and I want to get more of that one species and I want to do as much with that species before I even think of buying anything else or, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot more in the way of resources. Cause when I was a kid, they really, and I mean, I, I sound like, like, a, like I'm 90 years old. I swear I'm not, but <laughs> you, you didn't have the, the, the resources at your disposal. And I, I look at people in their twenties now who are getting into this hobby and I keep telling myself like, look, you have to understand, man, in the eighties, we had the public library. That was it. You had the public library and you had national geographic and maybe the local reptile store guy. And now I think about how many different sources of information people have at their disposal. I mean, even like weather conditions, I mean, people like want, yeah, if I want to know what the temperature is in a specific, you know, coordinate in Costa Rica, I can find it right now. You know what I mean? And you can plot it and it's, it's, it's and, taken, and the whole like, year and everything. Right. Yeah. 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 Which is, I, I found something that, um, has come in really handy. And I know that a lot of people who are getting out into the, getting into the hobby now take advantage of those resources, or at least I hope they do. <laughs> I hope they do too. You know, for sure. And I think also just generally the more people are getting into the hobby, which creates more room for more people. It's kind of like a domino effect. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I want to get into which amphibian species you're keeping, but um, I'm curious about the podcast and um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the whole podcast game is uh, it's, 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 it, it, it's a hard game. It, it takes a lot of work. Um, it does. <laughs> what made what made you decide to go down the the, the wonderful world of of podcasting? Um, you know what? I um, first of all, I gotta give I gotta give credit where credit is due. I was really enjoying the Herpetoculture Network at the time. I was listening to all of their. Uh, they have multiple different podcasts under the network. So there's um, the Herpetoculture podcast, Snakes and Stogies, Chondrocast, and I'm not much of a snake person myself, but just consuming content or information that i wanted to be googling while i was driving or while i was doing other work and still being able to enjoy these things was something that i well i really enjoyed um so i felt like i i also felt like there was uh like maybe not that there's a lack of information online or anything in in general like when you google or when you youtube but when it comes to podcasting there was definitely room for, and I still think there is room, by the way, for anybody who's thinking of, of starting a podcast. I think there's plenty of room for more podcasters to join, especially in our niche. Um, I had got to the point where I had consumed everybody's all reptile amphibian podcasts online. And I was like, I need more and there's no more. So maybe I should be that person to do that. But then on top of that as well, um, thinking long term, uh, podcasting is something that I think, you know, no matter where you are in life or no matter how, uh, I mean, hopefully, God forbid, I, I never have to get rid of my collection or or, or do, be doing something else with my life because obviously this is my passion, it's what I love. But if if I ever do, I don't need any of that stuff to keep doing the podcast. I could still be talking about animals all the time. I could still be having these conversations that I love to have and bringing all this information to people from wherever I am in the world. So it just seemed like podcasting was the right next step. Yeah, it's a unique... Um it's a unique experience. It's, I mean, it's look, you know, just as well as I do, it's, it's a tremendous amount of work too. I mean, how, I know that like, how are you, like, how are you managing everything? Cause I know you taking classes and whatnot. I mean, like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like for me, it takes a long time to produce a whole episode. I mean, it takes me about, I mean, I've gotten a little bit more streamlined. It takes me about six hours now, but I mean, how, how, what's the dynamic like from start to finish? Like when you find a guest and like how, how long does the whole process take you? Yeah, so I um, I record on um, on Streamyard. I don't know if, if if I was supposed to say that or not, but yeah, so I record That's on okay. Streamyard. So um, the way that it it gets me the audio file after is it's almost pretty much ready. So my um, the editing process doesn't take me as long as you. I just kind of I re-listen to the whole podcast and cut out or add in whatever I need. So if if the episode is two hours long, then it takes me two hours to edit it. Really. But the problem with that is, as you mentioned, I have class and I'm working at the moment. So there, it, it is a, a struggle. So the best, and of course, I'm not always consistent either. Unfortunately, I'd like to be, but hasn't had the chance to. But I think the best thing that I've managed to do to help around this is I record um, multiple episodes and I'll do one day of just 
like I will sit and edit for 12, 14, 15 hours. And then I now have a month of podcasts ready. And in that month, I can prepare the next month or whatever. Yeah, you kind of like bank a whole bunch of episodes and... Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. See, that's exactly. the thing I... I kind of, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I mean, that's that's what I don't have. I, I can squeeze in like an, a couple hours here and there. It's just I can't I can't spend like 15 hours doing straight editing. My my brain would explode. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, yeah, I'm usually like fried by the end of those 15 hours. Yeah, it's rough. How did you go about finding some of your guests? Because you've got a pretty eclectic bunch. Um, I mean, what was it like reaching out to people for the first time? Um, scary. <laughs> no, it's it's it was actually I, I was surprised. Um, so the, my when I first announced the the podcast, I already had spoken to a few close friends in the hobby, and I was like, I don't want to announce the podcast and not have anything already out there. So I had already recorded a few with friends. And once those first four episodes came out, I think there had already been like, okay, this is a thing now. So reaching out to people wasn't as hard as I think scheduling is is the harder part. Um, but how I find them is is really just um, through uh, Instagram or just people that I, I enjoy consuming their content that I want to maybe consume more of their content. I'm asking them. And then through through finding, uh, through guests on other podcasts. So I've, I've you know, um, there's Gecko Nation uh, Radio, for example, is a is a great podcast, and I I got uh, I heard Supreme Gecko Wally Kern from Supreme Gecko on there for the first time, and I found him on Instagram, and I reached out, and I was like, I need to hear more about what you have to say. And so it's kind of just, um, yeah, people that I find interesting online. <laughs> it's yeah, it's the same kind of same thing with me. It's uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you have you have it a little bit better. You you have a better, a smarter way of going around it because you. You're you're finding all these scientists that are writing research papers and stuff. I need to start doing that. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> I'll be honest yeah, with you. I bet. Yeah. I mean, some some of the challenges, especially with with dart frogs, is a lot of the research is done in situ, so it can be very hard. Like I I had um I had a guest a while back. I had um Dr. Juan Santos on, and he gave a very very thorough uh natural history of dart frogs and um i reached out to him again because when we we had some unfinished things we wanted to talk about but he's going to be going to do work in, in situ again so i won't be able to get to see him until about well see him but talk to him until about september so it's really yeah. it's hard man it's not easy getting uh scientists because a lot of them work in somewhere in south america central america and they don't have cell service or they're just unavailable it's it's so you gotta you gotta be lucky and get people when they're when they have some time Right, and when it's field season, it's field season, and that's all they're focusing on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's yeah. kind of a better explanation of of what I was uh, what I was saying. But yeah, no, that's yeah, I've I've had this similar experiences. Yeah, so like that's exactly it. Like I said, the toughest part of it all is the scheduling, really. Yeah, it can be tough, and different time zones is tough uh, as well. That I know, um, like Dylan Parent. I know he he has guests on from the UK and whatnot, and I've I've done that in the past. Well, the UK isn't so bad. Australia was a little bit trickier because of the the it's like you know it's like 9 p.m on tuesday here and it's like 6 p.m next wednesday over there yeah. so it, was, it was it was tricky it's like you, you, oh so wednesday at 6 p.m and you're both like on different days ready for the, ready for yeah. the podcast. <laughs> yeah i know i know you have to be really specific thankfully you and i are in the same time zone so same that time zone yeah well. so tell me which dark frog species you're keeping Okay, awesome. So I'll even give them to you in order. Um, so I, I first got the Phylobates vitatus, um, and then I got Dendrobates tinctorius oyopak, and then I got Ranitomea vanzolini, or vanzolini, I guess. Um, and then um, and then I went down the epitobates rabbit hole. So I got um, I have three of the epitobates um, lo locales. So I have the epitobate anti-ancas. Um, the Santa Isabels, and I have the um, the tricolors or the Rios, I believe they're called. And finally, okay, so that yeah, I'm already at six species, so I do have seven species of dart frog. Sorry, um, the final species that I recently got is Dendrobates auratus, the uh, Caprugana or the Colombian yellow. Do you have a preference for any of this? Any specific uh, genus or? Species? I, I, yeah, so I enjoy, I enjoy the Ranitomea a lot, um, or, or the, like, I haven't worked with any other Ranitomea species other than the Vanzoli, Vanz, wow, I just butchered that, Vanzolini, 
But I really enjoy watching them. I love how bold they are. I love that they're always out in the front and their call is incredible. Um, but also the my Oyopak, I just I love how bold they are. They I can they will jump right into my hands and I, I can feed them right out of my hand. It's incredible. Yeah, that was one of my one of my first. My oldest dart frog is actually is an, is an Oyopak, and he's a little right, yeah, little, teeny little peanut of a frog. And I, at the time, <laughs> I had I had for years, no one else had him. I was the only person. I have no idea how I got him. I got him at a local shop. How is um? Did you get yours from like one of the recent imports? I know that um, I can't. I think it might have been Wakiri or Understore. One of those places did a big import with Oyapox. Um, how'd you get about getting them? So um, I I I don't know this for a fact. Um, I do know that it was Understory that did the the import. I bought them from a a store in Montreal, which is about like eight, nine hours from where understory is located. But I do believe that they work together and sell them their frogs. So I, I have no proof or confirmation of it, but I, I have a feeling it is, it is off that import. Yes. And it was, it was around the same time. It was a couple of months after that import came in. So I assume it was off that. Now mine is tiny. All right. How this is, I'd had conversations with different people. And after this recent import, it's my understanding that a lot of the oil pox now are a lot larger than the one that I have from wherever that one came from. How big is it? Like, give, give us a description because I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I heard you say my guy's teeny and I was a little surprised. I think they're my biggest dart frogs. They're not, uh, I don't know how to, like what we can compare them to. Um, I had Azuris a couple of, a couple of uh, like about a year and a half ago and my Oyopak were bigger than them. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> like comparison or not but they're bigger they're yeah no it, look it, it is what it is i had comments yeah. i i was under the understanding that and i, I hate to, to use the term dwarf but I, mean, I was i was under the understanding for the longest time that they were considered kind of like a dwarf locale tinctorious and then i heard people from this last import in the past couple of years that like no they're actually pretty decent sized so yeah i, I i'd say pretty decent sized too yeah. yeah it's it'll i guess it'll forever remain forever remain a mystery but this guy is like really really small so like uh, like how small like are like a like a bit of bait size or um a little bit bigger he could probably sit he could probably sit comfortably on it on a half dollar so he's maybe about maybe about an inch and a quarter he's he's he's, he's okay. small he's he's definitely the smallest tinctorious i have and okay, um, interesting yeah i was just again for no one had him for years and then a couple of people reached out. They're like, "Oh, by the way, you want to get another Oyapak?" I was like, ah, I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, this one isn't particularly. I mean, I don't. I don't. At the time, I didn't really know what like a a stunning example of Oyapak should look like. So I was reluctant. I was like, I really don't want to pair this up with something. I don't really know if it's got the best genes in the world or whatever. And then I see pictures of other people's Oyapak, and I'm like, eh, this one probably should just be retired. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. that that makes it. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be those those oddballs or the little runs, I guess. Yeah, which could very well be. I think that a, a lot of people see pictures of dart frogs online and think that they're going to be these massive golf ball sized frogs. And I've had some frogs with variation in size. I've had some that are just they're just small. They're just not very very as big as as others. No, you're right. I've now at this point grown out um, easily over 100 Phyllobates vitatis, and I can confirm that. I mean, they're all roughly around the same size, but you'll definitely see the oddball that's just much smaller or a little bit bigger than the rest of the group. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? While we're talking about about size, you and I talked about tadpole nutrition and some different methods. We talked about individual, communal. When I was um, a guest on your show. Yeah. Tell us about what you're doing with nutrition and enclosure size. I remember you you kind of told me that your goal was to get tadpoles as as big and healthy as possible. So as possible. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing to to accomplish that now? Yeah. So um, many different many different tadpole tubs around the house right now. Um, so I, I of course when I first started breeding frogs, I you know watched a bunch of the YouTube videos and everything, and everyone was doing them in those little deli cups. So I was raising them in deli cups and everything. And I'd have the, not that, I mean, the majority of them would do great, but then there's always be the one frog that would come out really small, skinnier arms. I don't know if you've seen it, like almost like they weren't getting that right, that right um, 
size to be coming out of the water and surviving or or they'd come out and then maybe struggle to eat for the first couple of days um so uh me and a friend have been experimenting and um it's uh, of course nutrition is a big thing and like you spoke about like we spoke about um with what you did with the epitabates increasing the protein um that was a big thing as well so um initially Initially, I was only feeding them the Zumet tadpole pellets. I have stopped using those completely. I just don't feel like they take them and or eat them. I have now pretty much switched exclusively to Ripashi. So I use the um, Soil and Green. I use, um, what's it called? Oh, Bottom Scratcher, Soil and Green. And then the, um, the one for Epistogramma, which is the Spawn and Grow, which I would say maybe use lightly because it does contain quite a bit of fat. Um, but yeah, so we increased it, increased the protein in the food. Um, I also have this probiotic that's about 60% um, protein, which I don't obviously use too often, but uh, I, I mix that in as well. I will say, though, with the, increase, with the increase of the protein and the better nutrition for the tadpoles, we still weren't seeing like the same results as we are seeing now with the increasing of the volume of water um, the frogs are living in. So... Um, and that's not to say that, that each frog has, or each tadpole has to be living in like a big tub by itself. Um, I am raising, um, the Oyopak, like the, the Tinctorious tadpoles communally, communally. And it's just, instead of using like a, what, what are they called? Six quart shoe box. I think that like you, the, the regular tapers, we're using like really big ones, um, doing multiple water changes a week. And the frogs are coming out, believe it or not. Uh, so like five, six months ago, they'd come out eating springtails. Maybe even some of them, like, I feel like they still need a day or two before eating springtails. The Oyopak tadpoles are coming out with a tail without even absorbing their tail. They're already eating flies now. They're a much bigger frog. And you think that this had a lot to do with the, the communal, right? By um, you, you, you started off with the different diet while they were still in deli cups or you yes yes okay. i did I, I yeah i was we were trying the different diets when they were still in deli cups and we even tried like little critter keepers with one just one in there uh, increasing the diet um that i mean that was a little bit more volume of water so i guess i i don't know if it's exactly the volume of water the increase in water changes so maybe like the cleaner water um i will say though um i i have gone too clean I've done. I've gotten to the point where I've done enough water changes to where there wasn't any tannins in the water ever. There, there's just there wasn't enough time for the almond leaf to break in or me adding extra almond leaf. And you'll start to see a little bit of, um, like a fuzz around the tadpoles' mouths. So I, I don't know what. I know the the tannins are an antibacterial or an antifungal, and I'm sure that that's why. Um, or like the less water changes means more tannins means less chance of that fungal infection, or I believe it's a fungal infection. Um, but increasing the water changes. So when I, again, when I first started keeping tadpoles, um, a lot of the information you find online would be like, you don't need to water change them. They like the extremely stagnant brown water. Um, you could probably go one water change a month. I'm at least doing three to four a week now. Um, and I'm adding tannin water in separately, not just letting the Indian almond leaf just soak in. Are you using a sponge filter at all or any way to oxygenate it? I am not. I, I'm not. Uh, that, that, is, that is going to be the next, the next trial to see if um, I'm just going to. So uh, my friend does have, um, I, should, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. I'm going to give him a shout out. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. He's, he's been, yeah, he's been helping with all, the, all these. Uh, so frogs and plants, Greg, on, on Instagram, he's been doing a lot of these experiments too. He actually has them set up in a way where he has it drilled and he has the Miss King filter on the inside um so when he's when so it, it's not like how do i say this it's not like it's a bubbler but it's it's kind of a way to keep the water a little more uh fresh. like it's it's more of a constant water change at that point but keeping the tannins in so kind of like uh almost like topping off an aquarium sort of yeah like topping off but also always removing water too <sighs> i got you okay 
yeah, like like a constant, like a almost like a immediate water change. I, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah, I follow. Um, kind of like um, I guess like some of the big chain pet stores that have like these really huge aquarium sections. Well, not really yes. huge, but um, kind of like I'm just trying to visualize in my head. But yeah, I I, I got I I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, yeah, so the communal thing, I definitely think, um, so, uh, Troy Goldberg has talked about this before as well. Um, I don't know if I haven't actually found that I'm losing too many tadpoles by raising them communally, but I definitely think that it's possibly that maybe that there is the, the weakest one is gone or the most dominant one makes it out first. Now that he's out, there's more room for the second most dominant one to grow and take that, that size sort of in that way. Like the competition maybe is helping the size. That's the same experience I've had. I The only thing that I do differently than you is the, the water changes. I was doing partial water changes for a while. And then I found that with the, the sponge filter just kind of bubbling away in there, the water quality really didn't get to the point where I had to do these massive water changes. So I would just kind of just top it off or I take a little bit of it, like, you know, like a, like a jerky baster. Yeah. Well, not, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, a, like a little cup. I mean, I'm, this is a terrible frame of reference. So maybe like a 16 ounce cup and just kind of dump some out and then add a little bit in. But, um, I found right. that the, using the, the sponge filter prolonged the, the water quality. Cause I just, I mean, I kind of just let it get absolutely just like brown in there where I could, I'd have to tap on the side of it to see if there was any tadpoles in there, but they seem to do fine communally. Now, let me ask you, br just brown or is it brown with like all the mulm on the bottom and the, and the like broken down leaves and all the poop and all of that? I just left everything be. I just okay. let it, yeah, it was just, it was just left. I mean, it's now it's been, I have to, I mean, I've had the same tub going for like two months now and I think it's about time that I just started over again, but I didn't have, I didn't have any adverse effects. I mean, the, the only time it would be an issue would be if I added a food source that had like a, a lot of protein, like if I'd sprinkle, if I'd sprinkle like a little bit of like beardy buffet or something like that in there, yeah, um, yeah. which I know I've, I've mentioned in the past, that was just my way of just kind of giving a little bit of extra protein. I have to be really careful because that would really like foul the water. But I had that problem more in the cups than I did in the uh, communal with the, um, with the bubbler. So I think just that constantly oxygenating the water and the biofilm that developed on the sponge, I'm just assuming that may have just made it work for me. But, you know, I, I wouldn't let that system go, like, ad finitum. I mean, I, it's about time for me to kind of break it down and um, start over again. But, yeah, I just let all the leaves and everything just, just decompose, and the tadpoles will feed off of some of that, The the whatever grows on that. And, like that. I mean, there's a biofilm in the whole thing that they're eating in addition to the food, so... I just figured, you know what, if it's working, just, just let it go. But in the cups, forget it. They, they just, I'll, I'll never raise anything in a cup again. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And you know what, you might not even need to, um, restart those tubs. If there are anything like aquariums at this point, it would be cycled. And, and you know what, that might actually be like that. That might be a good idea to try maybe cycling tanks for tadpoles too, not just fish that there might be benefits in that too. There are already beneficial bacteria in the water like you said, by, uh, like a biofilm or a slime coat on the, on the walls. It it's, it, you might never need to change that. I mean, obviously water change it and clean it, but you may never need to restart it. That's a good idea. I never really thought of it like that way. You know, it's funny because with, with fish, amphibian people, we don't seem to get it. Like a lot of us are in the wrong mode. I feel like a lot of us are either in plant mode or we're in reptile mode. And I feel like yes. we, we got to get into fish mode because Every, they, I mean, they all they start out as tadpoles. They start out in the water. So you, you raise a good point. I never even would have thought about that, that it's the same as a cycled aquarium. That's good. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, and then other thing, another thing that I should like maybe just throw in there for, for food. I found that, um, the, the reason I moved away from the zoom at tadpole food, um, is I find that they, I, I read this somewhere. I'm not sure if, if I'm a hundred percent sure on it. They have, I might butcher this word spherical spherical mouths spiracles so basically they can't actually bite they can only graze or or collect like powders so that's why uh, the rapashi food is very soft they can kind of graze off it and then sometimes i'll even throw it in as a powder and i'll see all of the tadpoles in the tub 
kind of like vertically facing upwards, grazing off the surface. Um, I didn't. I don't feel like they could have done that with or break down the zoom at tadpole food until it was very like absorbed and absorbed enough water and it was very wet. And at that point, it was probably already starting to mold. So I just kind of stayed away from it. Yeah, I feel I feel like some of those products are designed for just. I guess I mean I don't even know what species of tadpoles. I mean. I mean Unless it was like, I mean, years ago, we used to have bullfrog tadpoles. Those things were like gigantic, but. Um, yeah, I'm sure those things would eat anything. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are monsters. But um, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I, I, I'm mean, i sure other people would know better than me, correct me, but I don't even know what you would feed. I guess unless you were feeding, I guess like, I'm that's, now I sound like an idiot, but um, I guess if you were raising tree frogs or, or horn frogs or whatever, but that's, that's a whole other thing. I don't even know what people are. Or feeding, feeding those them. things, but I, I can't imagine a little vial of Zoomed is going to be enough to feed an explosive breeder. No, not at all. No. Yeah. Uh, you're also keeping, and this this is another thing we were, we were talking a couple of days ago, and you mentioned this to me, and this this really really intrigued me. You keep Spanish rib newts, and you'd had an issue with treating prolapses. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, before before I tell you, I'll tell you the story of of the prolapse actually, because it's it's. One. So I got a, I got a new female, um, you know, just to mix in new blood and all of that. And uh, within 20 minutes of putting her in the tank with my males, I, there was eggs everywhere. So I was like, okay, that, <laughs> she was definitely already gravid, came in gravid or whatever. Um, and so I pulled her out and had her, had, had, like she, she laid all the eggs and everything. And, 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 and then that was that, or I thought that was that. Um, usually... From from everything I've read online, Spanish rib newts cannot retain sperm like geckos. So once they have that initial batch of eggs, or once they're done, they're done. I mean, they can lay infertile eggs, but they can't lay fertile eggs. So I don't know what was going on with this female. Um, she, about a week later, she laid another uh, clutch of fertile eggs. At this point, I was still like, okay, that kind of still makes sense. Um, about two weeks later, there was another clutch of fertile eggs and then non-stop for about a month every day almost um she she laid infer- infertile eggs um and she's kind of like not not now but it, it took like it this was a process that lasts quite a while so i i did speak to a number of vets and i actually have experience working in a lab with um axolotls where there's their own like sort of axolotl vets so i took their um opinion on this as well um or i should say sorry from from all the egg laying, um, her cloaca—I think that's the right word—her cloaca prolapsed. Um, yeah, and and so usually, if if it's not if it's not cured within like the first twenty-four to forty-eight hours, the the skin around the prolapse starts to dry up, and or it needs to be hydrated. Um, and and so I I I mean. I was worried, obviously, and I, I it had passed the 20, 48 hours marks and nothing was getting better. And I was pretty much convinced that this female was like, I thought there was nothing gonna be, that I was going to be able to do to save her. Um, and then I found a bunch of protocols online. So I was like, clearly, everything I've tried so far isn't working. Um, you know, the vet's advice didn't really work. Let me see, like, as a last scenario or last case hope or whatever, let me... Um, let me see what I found online. So I found a series of protocols from like, I guess, vets sharing them to each other on YouTube. Um, it's like how to cure prolapses and all of that. Um, so I have, I, I, I do, I mean, maybe share the method of the, of, of like curing the prolapse or. Yeah, sure. Tell us what, tell us what you did. Yeah. So, um, first of all, water changes, <laughs> clean water, of course, is very important. Um, but that wasn't doing the trick either. So. Um, she now gets, or not now, she, she started getting after that, um, she started getting Epsom salt baths. So she'll get a 15 minute Epsom salt bath and then she had to be fridged and kept in really cold water. So, um, usually they are cold water species, so you do need to keep them around. I'm sorry. I'm going to do Celsius. Is that okay? (laughs) Sure. That's fine. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm usually keeping them around like 1920, you know, bottom shelf of, of the room. Like they're, they're getting roughly just below room temperature um i was i dropped her water temperature to about 12 to 14 degrees and then maybe even lower so that her metabolism would slow down so that she wasn't passing as much and kind of consistently 
irritating um, the cloaca. So I slowed her down, slowed down her feeding, and then she started getting 15-minute Epsom salt baths a day, and then she would go into a new fresh. So it was a daily 100% water change um, right after the Epsom salt bath into new fresh, fully tan and filled water. And that that whole cycle went on for for about a month, and I would see improvements, almost like the prolapse would completely go, and then it would come back, and it would completely go, and it would come back. Um, so the, then I like I continued search. I found that this is what blew my mind because I never thought that this would be something that would be. I mean, I was already scared of trying Epsom salt with an amphibian, and so when I read there apparently sugar water was the cure. That, that was like super surprising for me, but it actually was. I, I put her in uh, a little bit of sugar water, obviously extremely diluted. And um, it's, I guess, through os- uh, osmosis or some something like that, the salt pulls out the, the fluids inside the prolapse, or not the salt, the sugar pulls out the fluids inside the prolapse. And um, within two days, it, it was like magic. Yeah, isn't that wild? You, I mean, people don't realize that sugar sugar dehydrates things it does and yeah uh, yeah when i first found out about that for for frog prolapses i was like I was like you kidding me like, that sounds ridiculous and that for some people it, it works it works pretty well do, i mean do you have an like an idea in terms of what might have caused the prolapse from like the the get-go i mean you think that was kind of something underlying before you got her or what yeah so I, I do. I have. I have a number of theories. First of all, she was pulled out of a tank of just males. Um, when I got to the store, they weren't really sure how to sex her, um, so they were pulling out a bunch of them. And every single one they pulled out was a male. Until we finally got to her, she was the last one. She was the only female. So I assume that she was probably not getting. Like she was probably getting, you know, picked yeah, on quite a yeah, bit in that yeah. tank. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that that was the initial thing, and then. Um, I think, um, yeah, no, I, 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 that, that's pretty much, that's, that's my only theory that maybe like she just, she, oh yes. So that she was getting picked on and she was getting gravid, but every time she would go to lay the eggs, she would maybe get grabbed by a male again, or that there was never an opportunity for her to drop the eggs. So when she was finally in a place where she could just let it all go, she did. And it just, it maybe came out too strong or too all at once and um prolapser i i no clue <laughs> that's a wild. i mean that's a that's a wild situation yeah wow. I'll, I'll tell you it it took it it took a couple of months too it wasn't like uh like it wasn't just a two three week thing like this was three to four months of, of dealing with this and what what kind of dilution did you use for the sugar solution um one teaspoon for every 32 ounces roughly something like that Okay, so it's it's I mean, still a fair yeah still still a fair amount of sugar in there. It it is yes it is. And uh, what about the Epsom salt solution? What was the what was half the re- of that? Okay, half of that which which okay. I I did slowly start to go up um, out of my own like there, there's no protocol or anything that says this, but at, at one point I was getting frustrated, so I was increasing the Epsom salt a little bit every day. And increasing the time she was spending in there a little bit every day, but then I was realizing that it's it's not like this is not going anywhere, so I stopped doing that as well. Yeah, I've heard. I mean, I'm not too deep into the axolotl world, but I've I've heard of people doing something similar with with sick axolotls. I believe is um, doing like a salt solution soak. Yeah. So the the initial protocol was on an axolotl, and the lab that I previously worked at, um, all of them are axolotls in there. So whenever they get uh, I, I don't believe we ever actually had the prolapse in the lab, but whenever we get like fungal infections on the gills or anything like that, it would be uh, salt baths and fridging. And so it's, it's yeah, it's it's the general protocol for, um, you know, aquatic aquatic amphibians, I guess. But um, it's just, it's not something you think of, like salt and sugar, two things that you, you think that could probably kill my animal. <laughs> and they're the solution. Yeah, yeah. And a, a prolapse is just a... I mean, it's, it's, it's Scary. such a nightmare. I, I, the, the frog that I, I still have it, the, um, the Ceratophorus Rita, the Brazilian horn frog that I have, uh, he had a, a prolapse. This frog is a, it's a real, like, <laughs> this is a really special needs frog. This thing is just a nightmare to take care of. And he prolapsed and I was like, oh man, I'm like, 
that's it. He's, he's, he's gone. You know what I mean? He'll be lucky if he makes it through the night and he made it through the night and I did the whole, the sugar solution. I'm like, all right, this isn't really working. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to kind of go a little bit extra here. And, um, I just, I put a lot more sugar directly on the area and let him sit for a couple hours. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to try and manipulate it very gently, manipulate it back in make a long story short it went back in and i'm like all right this is going to be the crucial period and he's still here he's still alive he's a real aggravating frog to have to deal with he, <laughs> he the only eats he only eats with, through assist feeding oh yeah um, <clears throat> yeah never very rarely goes to the bathroom and i have a a cranwell eye next to him in in, in, the, in the cage right next to him same complete opposite. Yeah, then that frog, that frog eats my eats my fingers off. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's just some animals just seem to be predisposed to have problems. I guess. Yeah, that, yeah, and the problem is like we don't really know what maybe not even their breeder, but the breeder of the people who bred. I mean, like it's it's genetics, right? At this point, how many generations back has this animal been screwed up for? <laughs> yeah, I mean that, and the fact that some animals, especially amphibians, produce so many offspring. Right. So you have to figure, I mean, especially with explosive. I mean, I have my theories about explosive breeders, like uh, like the Pac-Man frog complex. I yeah. just, I just don't think that I, you know, out of ten thousand offspring, how many of those are really meant to survive? To how many of those and- are actually fit enough to survive? So, I feel like a lot of them kind of squeak along through the way, squeak in along the way, and aren't really cut yeah. out to make it without some kind of human intervention. But Yeah, and I was about to say, and exactly, and we, we with human intervention, we can make a lot of those weaker ones survive. So we do have the weaker genetics in, in the hobby for sure. Yeah, and you made a good point about the, the lab situation. I often wonder, we always, we always try to say to ourselves, well, how, how would we treat this problem in the wild? How, what, would, what would the wild be like? And laboratory conditions are obviously not the wild. There's There's not as many variables so you have to ask yourself are we creating treat are we creating treatments in the lab for lab problems or are we creating treatment in the lab for wild problems that's yeah very good point yeah yeah what i mean when you were working with axolotls in the lab you want you want to tell us about what you were doing there um yeah sure yeah uh so i it was it was like basically uh during my undergrad i was volunteering in um in uh evolutionary development lab um so they were raising xenopus and axolotls and my job was basically to i was the animal care um on the team but because i was so interested i got to help out with a lot of different projects so it was cool we bred the axolotls um and then we there we could de-jelly the eggs so it was getting the jelly coat off 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 the embryo um and then they would uh first of all there, there a lot of it was on the brain case so they were trying to see the structure as it's growing from um, an embryo into an adult, what's that like? And then there's a lot of um, just a, it, like a evolutionary development lab. So it's kind of like, if we do this, what happens to the animal now? And, um, you know, all, um, there, there was a lot of tests on on Xenopus as well, um, the African claws frog. Um, they, I, I don't know. Honestly, I have no idea if I'm allowed to even how much I'm allowed to be saying. But like, for example, um, they were able to they were able to find out what the chemical that allows axolotls to drop their um, gills and grow lungs and come out of the water was. Um, or they, there was another one where they were able to change the structure of the brain of the axolotl um, by, I, I believe, I believe. Uh, putting the embryos in a solution and then the babies just started growing uh, weirder. But then they can also, through that, they have um, GFP, um, green fluorescent protein, I think it's called, which is what allows all the um, all the axolotls that glow out under black light. That's what allows them to glow under black light. So they were able to insert it into certain places to see where the changes are happening in the skull or um, or in different parts of the, of the skeleton. Yeah. That's amazing. There's so much, yeah. there's so much going on with axolotls outside. I just keep them as pets. It's, uh, it's wild. It's, it's, it's crazy. Actually, I want to say, I, I don't know. I also don't want to say this. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw it in there. I am hoping 
to very soon go back into the lab and maybe do something with dwarf frogs. Um, fingers crossed. I'm trying, but no, no guarantees. <laughs> All right, no, that's cool. If if it yeah. listen, if it, if it comes up and you can at some point you can talk about it, we'll definitely we'll talk about it again in the future. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I, there's more there's more people doing work stateside with uh, with dwarf frogs. Well, I'm sorry, you're in Canada, but like here in the U.S., there's there's a few labs that uh, that do work with them. Definitely more than we have up here. I don't think there's anybody really working with them up here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, that could that could change as the uh, you know dark frog world becomes a little bit more a uh, little bit more common. I guess there might be a greater interest in it. I'm um, I'm curious yeah. about the the, the Vanzellini eye and um, like I, I I've never honestly I've I've only kept two Ranitomea. I had a couple of Chizutas like years ago. How are you keeping your um your Vanzellini eye? How do you, how do you have them set up? I have them set up, and this is actually. Um, I'd love maybe if anybody who's listening to this has any opinions or ideas, feel free to message me and give me them. I so interesting story is I was keeping them in. Um, initially, I grew them out in a twelve twelve twelve. I grew out a trio in a twelve twelve twelve, and one of them died. Now it was the female. So okay, so. I grew out the three, the female died. I, I moved them out of that tank and I brought another female and, uh, no, sorry. I bought another pair. So now I had two pairs and now the, um, the female died again. So I'm wondering if anybody knows this, if they can only, if the females fight or if they can't, um, if they can't cohab now they're doing fine. So I have them now as pairs. They've bred for me. Um, and I'm growing out the babies together and I haven't seen any aggression from the babies, but uh, every time I put, um, or, or not every time I did it twice, but every time I put two females together, they one of the females ended up dying. So uh, I don't know if anybody has any opinions of that, but but that's that. But yeah, uh, generally I have them set up just like all my other dark frogs. I'm not the greatest at scaping and or doing backgrounds, so it's just you know a general um, drainage layer, substrate. You know, usually use like um, either like one of those cork backgrounds or or um i've just started experimenting with silicone and all that but i'm not good at it by any means um and uh yeah they're in a pairs in 12 12 18s it wouldn't surprise me if there was some kind of aggression i had the 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 pair that i had i don't mean a pair like um they were they, they weren't a sex pair they just i just happened to get two because i always get two of yeah. everything yeah of and course, um <laughs> Yeah, you get two because if one dies, you have the, you have a spare. You have the other one, of course. And, but that's exactly what happened. Was I had two of them in there, and it was uh, what was it? I think it was I think it was a twelve by eighteen, which which probably should have been bigger. But this was this was going back a, a while, and yeah. um, one of them just just disappeared one day, and I couldn't find it. And then I I found it maybe like a week later, kind of just like a little crispy critter in the uh, leaf litter. So I have I have no idea. I don't know if it. My guess was that it had been stressed out by the other individual in the tank, whether it was female on female or just a fluke. I, I really don't know, but it it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, same thing. If anybody, if you know, any people out there who were uh, real heavy into Ranitomea, just just let me know because now I'm 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 curious about it too. Yeah, it's it's funny because um uh, again the same Fred Greg has a big group of the Ranitomea serenses and he keeps them all together and he says there's absolutely no aggression and he's he's convinced or um or not like he says all of his experience with Ranitomea is that they're all um of course he hasn't kept them all so based on the ones he's kept he says that they're all communal so I'm surprised that maybe the Vanzellini or Vanzellini I aren't but I, I don't know. And nothing surprises me. I just, I just feel yeah. like no matter what you do, something's got to go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> any, there's. I mean, <laughs> anytime you put two, two of anything together, regardless of what it is, you already have a recipe for something. Something bad can happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or great, you never know. Maybe we'll find some babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good too. Uh, I mean, while while we're talking about everything bad, <laughs> everything bad that could happen, we were talking the other day about yes. dark frog. <laughs> enclosure horror stories and um i had uh i, I had a listener i i and I, I talked to some listeners and whatnot from time to time and we were just kind of talking about how just there's some really bad care advice out there and there's just you know there's there's bad videos and there's bad products and whatnot and i ended up looking at this 
thing online. I don't even want to say what it was. I was looking. I ended up looking at this, you know, string of posts online for this website, and I'm looking at it. And I started thinking, "Wow, I'm like this. <laughs> this actually exists." I was like, "There's really bad stuff out there," and I started talking to you about it, and you were telling me about some of the horrific things you've seen as well. I mean, just what yeah. are some of the, the 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 absolute worst dart frog setups you've seen? Okay, so I, I'm probably going to be like basically saying some of the things you already put on your story the other day. But um, so the worst one that I've personally seen, and I don't know if it's if it's if if maybe I'm thinking it's the worst one, just because of like I'm used to amphibians being you know not a, not a wet species, but you know you need the humidity. But the worst one I've ever seen was a five gallon with sand bone dry and there was at least four or five species of um tinctorious in there or four or five locales of tinctorious in there different ones um and and then they had a small um you know the this the the little things you put under the pots what are they called yeah and the little the little clay plays that go the, the clay plates that go under like um plant pots to catch the water yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so they have one of that in the middle of the tank with just a bit of water in there and like a fake plant in the corner. And that was that was their that was their setup. It was great. <laughs> I'm just trying to visualize this here and yeah, if they you know were on bare sand, did they look like they were like little like Bread, yes, breaded chicken them. cutlets or something like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. Every you could see it. Every spot, every jump they took, they were like getting more and more coated with sand. And I do know for a fact that they had arrived in that's like the, the the person was telling me, Oh no, we're we're not we're not selling them yet. They're they just arrived. And I had half mind telling me you're never gonna sell them because if they just arrived, those things aren't gonna survive for the end of the day. Like they're it they're they're gonna dry out by the end of the day, hundred percent. And he was like, no, no, we spray them. And he opened the tank and gave them a little mist. And, and that was, that was that. And I was like, okay. Um, but I, I've seen some, some crazy stuff I've seen. Um, um, I'm not going to say the name of the store, but there's a store up, up in Toronto. Um, and they have like a, a rack of, of tanks and they're also five gallons and the amount of muck on the bottom. I don't even know what the substrate is at any point. Cause it just looks like wet mud and it's gone halfway up the tank and the frogs look like they're swimming in it. Like not jumping in it, swimming in it. <laughs> I've heard of doing it too much with the uh, with the wet substrate. I've never heard about doing it the other direction though with the sand. I, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, my mind is blown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Exactly what I'm saying. Like I, maybe it was in my head it was the worst one because I'm so used to being like, okay, humidity for dark frogs. So when I saw it bone dry, I was like, this is just no. But yeah, that's crazy. I I feel like. Some of the worst substrates out there seem to be the substrates that are marketed to beginners, like sphagnum moss. Sphagnum moss is, is great; it has its place for certain things, but yes. as a long term substrate, yes. it's just it's it's just it's awful. No, yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, and 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 Spanish, uh, uh, not Spanish. Sphagnum moss will, I'm sure you already know this, will become uh, anaerobic with high um, quantities of water very quickly. So it can develop bacteria in there and all of that and affect your frogs like skin and legs. So I, I definitely would not recommend using sphagnum moss. I, the only time I use it is uh, grow out bins and the frogs are usually in there for only like a week or two. Yeah. And, you, and even then it's not sopping wet. <laughs> yeah. And then you still have to change it and then you every so often anyway. Yeah. It's just, exactly. it's, it's funny because I'll go to, I'll go to, well, when I, when we used, we used to have reptile shows here in New York. I went to one a couple of months ago, but I'll look at a pre-setup vivarium and you you look at it and it's like, all right, this is nice. But once this person gets at home, this, everything in this tank is going to go south. Like immediately, it's all sphagnum moss or that weird kind of like moss ball thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's like this big, yeah. like emerald green moss ball. The, the They call it, I think, frog moss or something. I think so. Yeah. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's just in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like one little. It's like a little like decorative, uh, decorative item. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you st- when you started keeping dart frogs out, where did you go for input in terms of how to set everything up? I and mean, was did you have a learning curve? I mean, did you? Because I mean, I, I made I made plenty of mistakes, but I did. I I um my my biggest mistake 
I think, um, was use of space. So I knew I, I had already been keeping reptiles and all of that for a while. So I already knew the general concept of uh, a bioactive tank and a drainage layer and setting up the substrate and all of that. My biggest mistake was when I designed, when I scaped it, I scaped it, I put a giant piece of, um, a giant cork in the middle. And then I was like, well, I don't want them to get stuck behind that. So I stuffed a bunch of spag and moss in the back. And then um, when it comes down to it, there's there was like maybe like, a quarter of the tank for the frogs to actually use. And I know they can they can climb, but I kind of like, instead of creating visual barriers and layers in the tank, I basically had two sides, one that was very high and one that was very low. And other than that, the frogs had nowhere to go. So they were always like jumping into each other. <laughs> yeah, us usable space is an important thing. It's very important, yeah. Like you could have two exactly same size tanks and one could be, very functional and one could be like you cannot use that for a frog and and usable space is what makes the difference i think that's one of the things that gets lost on people especially when they start doing their first vivarium builds is the the, the lack of appropriate space like i'll see people put and this is that site that I, I mentioned before people put up pictures of their vivariums which is like oh does this paludarium look good for a dark frog and people would say well, there's no land feature at all where, yeah, there's where, nowhere for them to. Yeah, yeah. Where's it going to go? Yeah, and I know they climb, but they, you, you mean you still need the different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I like to swim, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit in the pool for 24 <laughs> exactly. hours a day. That's the best way to put it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're kind of winding down here at the end, but um, I'm curious, what do you think, um, like the future holds for you and 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 the podcast and your collection? Like, what what are your goals for the next, um, you know, the next year or the future or whatnot? Yeah. Um, so I like I mentioned earlier, I want to get into more of um, the less common species. Um, so I'm slowly getting. Not, not, I don't. I don't want to say getting rid of because that sounds so bad. But I'm slowly rehoming a lot of my crested geckos that I initially picked up. I am hoping, um, so emerald tree skinks are hoping to start getting them breeding. My mountain horn dragons are almost the right size um, or right age, I guess, to start breeding. I'm super excited for those guys as well. Um, but from the amphibian side, uh, we have a very big lack of variety here in Canada. So the reason I have Spanish rib newts is because those are the only newts I can get my hands on. I love them, but I would love more species of newts. I would love to see more uh, salamanders in the hobby here. So I think moving forward from the reptile side or from the amphibian side, I really want to uh, try to get my hands on some more newts and salamanders and, and just kind of make them more popular here in Canada or make them more accessible and available here in Canada. And for the podcast, um, I'm going to very soon uh, make it true to its name it's I'm, I'm hoping to make it a round table very soon i know like we said earlier i know we've already discussed this and i'm in the in the works of making that happen but i would like many many round table episodes as well yeah i, I love stuff like that that always uh that always interests it, me yeah and and uh, yeah exactly and and you know we, we like it, we have a lot of good information in the hobby we need some entertainment for the hobby too <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> i keep i keep forgetting that this is about entertainment sometimes <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you just like you take yourself too seriously? Because I feel like all the time I, I'm like I'm like I'm I'm too serious about this. Like I I gotta stop worrying about what everyone thinks and just just kind of go with it every so often. Yeah. Sometimes I take myself back and I'm like, man, it's just a hobby, man. You're yeah. just this is just what you love to do. It's it's not it's not that deep. What about the YouTube channel? Because you I know you post a podcast on YouTube. Do you have any goals to grow that channel out? Yeah, so I have I have two. I have I I mean I have Daffy's Reptiles, the YouTube channel, and then I have uh, Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast on YouTube as well. Um, for the podcast, I I don't think I'll I'll be doing much on the YouTube end just yet. Um, it's more of it's on there just to be on there, just for the sake of it being like, you know, why why lose that extra audience on YouTube is kind of the way I'm thinking of it, right? Um, but for my um. For my YouTube channel that's not the podcast, I do have quite a few videos that I'm working on. I have not been consistent and or posted in a couple of months now, and I hate myself for it. Um, but yeah, so moving forward, I got a couple of cool, co couple of cool videos coming up on that. Awesome. 
Yeah. Well, I, uh, I I want you to just give the listeners a chance if they want to find you, find the podcast and the YouTube channel. How can they uh, how can they go about doing that? Yeah. Um, so I am Daffy's Reptiles absolutely everywhere. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, TikTok. You'll find me as Daffy's Reptiles and or Daffy's Reptiles. And the podcast is also on all streaming platforms and YouTube as Daffy's Roundtable. Cool. And always feel free to reach out to me. I love chatting with animal people. Like it's, you know, it's part of the fun. So feel free to always reach out, ask me questions, just to chat. It's, 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 yeah, it's yeah. always fun. Yeah. It's always fun hearing different people's uh, perceptions and takes on things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everyone. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I love just kind of, you know, just talking shop with other hobbyists and it's always, it's always fun talking uh, content creation with other creators. Um, I know a lot of you listening out there have YouTube channels. I know some of you are involved with, with the podcast and things like that. And it's a lot of fun. You know, I always enjoy hearing people's perspectives on different things. So I don't know, fun stuff. I always like, I love doing stuff like this. So yeah, if you get a chance, go check. Yeah. If you get a chance, go check it out. Um, Daffy's round table, Daffy's reptiles, it's good stuff. So, all right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed it and catch up with you again soon. <laughs>